how many Jews are there at Harvard? Well, it depends when you look and how you count. This is Rabbi Jonah Steinberg, Harvard's Jewish chaplain and the executive director of Harvard Hillel, the campus Jewish organization. And I'm Mark Oppenheimer. And yes, we have finally gotten to Harvard in the final episode of Gate Crashers. I've asked Rabbi Steinberg if it's true that the number of Jews at Harvard has crashed, that there may be fewer Jews at Harvard now than when discriminatory policies kept Jews out. We think the percentage today hovers somewhere under 10%. Harvard officially stopped keeping track of religious identification in the early 1990s. Several years ago, there was much notice taken among Jewish alumni when the Crimson's annual survey, that's the campus newspaper, when the Crimson's annual survey of the freshman class showed Jewish percentage in single digits for the first time. I went and looked at the Harvard Crimson's annual survey of the freshman class, which they started doing in 2017. And that year, 9.5% of freshmen who responded said they were Jewish. In 2020, the last time the Crimson seems to have done the survey, only 6.3% said they were Jewish. Now, just for the record, the same survey showed that 64% of them were entering college as virgins and that 72% of them were Mac users. 26% preferred PCs. But back to religion. Rabbi Steinberg was a little dubious that Jewish numbers were that low, and he pointed out that a lot depended on how you asked the question. How many or what percentage of the freshman class checks the box that says Jewish on a question about religion when atheist and agnostic are also on the menu? So there were probably some ethnically Jewish students who had answered atheist or agnostic, but were still Jewish. I asked Rabbi Steinberg if he thought the Jewish numbers might in fact be much higher maybe close to the 25% or more that were Jewish in the late 80s and 90s. But he said, no, there really had been a huge drop throughout the Ivy League. It's definitely declined, even plummeted, from the time when I was in college. I graduated college in 1991. And at that point, both Brown, where I was, and when I came to visit friends, Jewish and not, here at Harvard, I would say Harvard College was at least a quarter Jewish, or it seemed that way. One alumnus of Harvard from the 1990s told me that the percentage of Jews seemed even higher to him when he was there. He said athletes tended to hang out together, and black students often hung out together, as did Hispanic students and rural white students, and students from the Deep South. And there weren't so many Jewish kids in any of those groups. All of which meant that of the group left behind, basically white kids who did nerdy activities like student newspaper, a cappella singing, the debate team, of this group, the group he hung out with, more than half were Jewish. Today, there are still plenty of Jews at Harvard and other Ivy League campuses, but peak Jew in the Ivy League is clearly in the past. In 2010, for example, Penn was about a fifth Jewish. Six years later, that number plummeted to 13%. At Yale, the number of Jews has fallen from probably a quarter to 10%. And way back in 1999, the New York Times was already reporting on Princeton's rapidly diminishing Jewish population. What happened? The story of the decline of Jews in the Ivy League is complicated. 
complicated in ways that tell us a lot, not just about America, but about other minority groups within America, including Asian Americans. And it's also complicated in ways that tell us a lot about my people, the Jews. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Gatecrashers, a podcast about the hidden history of Jews in the Ivy League. In this, our eighth and final episode, we turn our attention to the oldest, most famous, and yes, as a Yale man, I'll admit it, the most prestigious school in the United States, Harvard College. Founded in 1636, it's the alma mater of both Presidents Adams, both Presidents Roosevelt, and President Kennedy, as well as Conan O'Brien, Natalie Portman, Tommy Lee Jones, Mo Rocca, the lead singer of Weezer, and the actors who played Herman Munster, Will Hunting, of the movie Good Will Hunting, and Beverly Hills 90210's Cindy Walsh. It's also one of the original schools to exclude Jews back in the 1920s, but then went on to have multiple Jewish presidents, but now has 75% fewer Jews than when I was in college. And so, for episode eight, we race to the head of the Charles River to solve the case of the incredibly shrinking Jewish student body in the Ivy League, and to try to figure out why schools that just 20 years ago were bastions of Jewish life aren't anymore, and what this change tells us about Jews and about America. Welcome to Gatecrashers, Episode 8, Harvard and the End of the Jewish Ivy League. In the early 20th century, Harvard College, like other Ivy League schools, saw a big surge of Jewish students. And in 1900, there were 7% Jews. By 1922, the number of Jews had risen to 21.5%. This is Marsha Graham Sinnott, author of The Opened Door, a history of discrimination at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. She said that the tripling of the Jewish percentage at Harvard from 1900 to 1922 freaked out Harvard President A. Lawrence Lowell. Lowell didn't like immigrants, and he didn't like Jews. He also didn't like black students, and he barred them from freshman residence halls, forcing them to live off campus. So what was he going to do with a school that was 22% Jewish? That, of course, to Lowell, was very, very disturbing. It, had, it was just too much, he thought. I think he thought that they were changing the nature of Harvard and that he had a view of Harvard as really that you were educating the people who were descendants of the earliest generations who went to Harvard. And that's what he wanted to keep. Just how did Lowell go about solving the Jewish problem? First, he appointed a faculty committee to study the extent of the problem. The committee did a disturbingly thorough job of counting Jews. They chose a sample of 8,000 Harvard students from 1900 on and classified all of them as J1, J2, or J3. J1 meant a student was conclusively Jewish, J2 probably Jewish, and J3 possibly Jewish. Then they treated every student classified as J1 or J2 as Jewish and compared them to non-Jewish students in numerous categories. Grades, participation in athletics, participation in social clubs, whether they needed financial aid, whether they lived on campus or off, even whether they were more or less likely to cheat or to get expelled for sexual immorality or drinking. In case you were wondering, according to this study, the Jews weren't any less moral than their classmates. But there was a growing number of them, and that was bad enough. Having ascertained just how many Jews he was dealing with, 
Lowell put in place measures to shrink their numbers. From a high of nearly 28% Jewish in 1925, Harvard cut its Jewish numbers to between 10 and 15%, and that lasted through World War II. Harvard used all the tricks we saw at Yale, Columbia, and other schools, like limiting students from big public high schools and seeking Gentiles under the guise of geographical diversity. But as was the case in the other Ivies, this discrimination waned after World War II. The number of Jews at Harvard really shot up in the 1970s, so that by the 1980s, Harvard was a quarter Jewish, give or take. And then, maybe around the year 2000, the numbers started going down, way down, until they arrived at the present number of under 10%. There were still plenty of Jews at Harvard, but it's safe to say that Jewish Harvard, of the kind that existed in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, is gone forever. But before we investigate, we have to ask an honest question. Is this really a problem? Because when Harvard was 20% Jewish, other minority groups were underrepresented. In 1998, Harvard was 7% Black, the highest in the Ivy League. But at the time, the United States was 13% Black. So the percentage of African Americans at Harvard was only half what it was in the country. Today, that has completely changed. Harvard's current freshman class is 15% Black, more than their percentage in the American population. And the class is 3% Native American, three times what the United States is. And then there are Asians, 7.2% of the American population, but almost 28% of Harvard's current freshman class. We'll get back to them in a bit. So in theory, it could be the case that Jews are the same percentage of whites at Harvard as they always were, but that there are just far fewer whites at Harvard. But that's not quite right either. Harvard has not shrunk the number of elite athletes it admits, and that tends not to be a very Jewish group. And they've kept their geographical diversity, drawing students from all 50 states, whereas Jews are still concentrated in a few large urban areas. So if you're a Jewish kid who's not an athlete, not a legacy, and not from Wyoming, because what kind of Jew is from Wyoming, then there's not much room left for you. I'm just kidding, by the way. I know a Jew from Wyoming. But the biggest reason that Jews no longer attend the Ivy League in record numbers? It might just be, well, Jews. I'll let a really big expert explain it. You think I don't take diversity seriously? Only a fool doesn't. Diversity is the engine that drives this country. We are an immigrant nation. The first generation works their fingers to the bone making things. The next generation goes to college and innovates new ideas. The third generation snowboards and takes improv classes. That's Jack Donaghy, the character played by Alec Baldwin on the sitcom 30 Rock. He wasn't talking specifically about Jews and schools, but his theory is spot on. Writing in 1996, the journalist Nicholas Lemon had already noticed that something was going on. That Jews, to put it bluntly, just weren't trying so hard. His son was on a Little League hockey team with lots of other Jews. And those Jewish kids were not, he was sure, up all night studying, the way their great-grandparents were. Lemon wrote, Even by my school days, the academic hunger had begun to wane. By now, it is barely producing a pulse, except among Jews who are within one generation of the immigration cycle. Jews have not become notable as academic underachievers, but something is gone. That old, intense, and generalized academic commitment 
linked to sociological ambition, is no longer a defining cultural characteristic of the group. It's a shift so subtle and yet so bold, playing out in small ways in the lives of tens of thousands of Jewish families, and yet playing out in very large ways in the life of the American Jewish community. It's hard to do it justice, to take so many strands and facts and variables and mush them together into one big theory of everything. There are surely many factors reducing the number of Jews at Harvard, from the search for other kinds of diversity to the increased recruitment of the brightest kids from all over the world. But if you're wondering why there are far fewer Jews at Harvard these days than there were in the past, there's one blunt and simple explanation that we can't avoid. Too much success, too much distance from their Jewish roots. Here we are. These days, instead of thinking of ourselves as outsiders, as Jews from Moses to Joey Ramon had always done, we think of ourselves as insiders, just like everyone else at the law firm or the faculty lounge or the country club. And when you start thinking this way, the fire that once burned bright enough to guide you to a place like Harvard is smothered. But look, there are still a lot of Jews at Harvard. Only it's hundreds, not over a thousand anymore. Something old is new again. A Harvard that is seven or 8% Jewish. Just like that old anti-Semite President A. Lawrence Lowell dreamed of. Friends, if you like what you're hearing on Gatecrashers, you might also like another podcast that I host. Unorthodox is the universe's leading Jewish podcast, and each week, my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz, and I discuss the news of the Jews, and we interview two guests, one Jewish and one a Gentile of the week. We talk to fascinating people. Some of our guests have included comedian Judy Gold, Congresswoman Katie Porter, authors like A.J. Jacobs, Chuck Klosterman, and more. Guys, this show is a lot of fun. It's irreverent, but not silly, at least not most of the time, and it will always get you thinking. You can find Unorthodox, a Tablet Studios production, wherever you listen to podcasts. Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. What's it like to be a Jewish Harvard student today? I would say it's been a wonderful place to be Jewish. This is Sabrina Goldfisher, a senior and a past president of Harvard Hillel. She says Harvard is where she really came out as a Jew. When I was younger, I would never wear anything that could give away my identity or, or wear any jewelry that would have any sort of indication that I was Jewish because of always those fears in the back of my mind. As a descendant of Holocaust victims, like you just are you're taught that. But since I've gotten to college, I've, I've started more proudly wearing my Megan David. And it's a privilege and an honor in a lot of ways to be able to be a Jewish student on campus. This was a story I heard from a lot of students and recent alumni that Harvard is a great classroom in which to learn to be out and proud as a Jew. My name is Emily Shire. I grew up in Scarsdale, New York, which is a pretty Jewish suburb. Shire, who was Harvard class of 2011, came from a proudly Jewish family, but she didn't arrive at Harvard expecting to become super involved in Jewish life. I ended up in the Hillel House kind of by mistake. I really didn't know anyone when I got to college. I was very overwhelmed extremely homesick. 
And Hillel happened to be the first place where some older students were really nice to me. You know, the food was really good too. And I just suddenly had this friendship and this network of support. And that's what drew me into Hillel and Jewish life on campus. Shire began going to religious services, and she made friends who were more observant than she was. She recalls Hillel as one big happy family. And I think it was a testament to the unique place that Harvard Hillel was that I don't recall real schisms between Reform, Conservative, Orthodox. We had separate services, but we always came together for meals in this big dining room, and it was really lovely. And people from all different minions sat with each other. Shire ended up joining Hillel's student board. I believe it was the first year that the student board, which is comprised of six students, was entirely female, and we were very excited about it. And it was this great mix of our president was in the conservative minion, but she was also a descendant of someone who came over on the Mayflower. I believe her mom had converted to Judaism. We had two other members of the board who were modern Orthodox and one who was Reformed and also identified as Latina and was involved in those student groups on campus. My job was to be social chair. I felt somewhat vindicated because I had rushed sororities and I didn't get called back for any. And I'm like, yeah, I'm social. As social chair, Shire was put in charge of a specifically Jewish party, honoring Harvard's very non-Jewish founder. And we organized this party called John Harvard's Bar Mitzvah. This was a tradition. John Harvard's Bar Mitzvah had been this big party at Hillel where we had beer and pizza. And I think we tried to time it around for him. So we had Hamantash and two and we got a DJ. And it was actually you know, within the bounds of being in the Hillel House, a pretty raucous activity. I remember a really good friend of mine who's from rural Texas, who I am 99.9% sure did not meet a Jew before he came to Harvard, was lifted up on a chair and was cheering. It was really fun. And I think that was a moment when it was like, oh, we feel cool. Our Jewishness is part of why we are cool and accepted on campus. But that was 10 years ago. Let's get back to Harvard undergraduate life now. One thing you'll hear from students is that the number of Jewish students feels smaller than they thought it would. My name is Aaliyah Smith. I graduated from Harvard in 2020. Smith grew up in the small Jewish community of Columbus, Ohio. And when she left for Harvard, she was expecting more Jewiness. She didn't get what she expected. I always thought I would go to college and have a ton of Jewish friends. That was like a sort of dream that I had, especially about going to school on the East Coast, you know, coming from the Midwest. And I had plenty of friends that were Jewish, but it, it just wasn't really like as much of a thing as I thought it would be. She said there were plenty of Jews at Harvard, but a surprising number of them didn't think much about their Judaism. It was super weird for me to meet people who had grown up in environments where there were a lot of Jewish people. Like, I encountered this sort of type of person, which I had never encountered before, which is like the secular Jew. Um, it was, like, pretty weird for me to, like, meet people who were like, I'm Jewish, but they, like, actually didn't have that much of a connection to the religion or to like specific aspects of Jewish history and culture. It was more like a sort of bagels and neuroses kind of thing. Smith said that in 2018, when 11 Jews were murdered at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, she actually felt that a lot of her fellow Harvard Jews weren't that affected. They were Jewish and they came from Jewy places like New York and LA, but they didn't have the sense of Jewish solidarity that she'd grown up with in Ohio. When the Tree of Life shooting happened, I 
realized that I couldn't really explain to a lot of my Jewish friends what it was like to like feel so connected to the synagogue as like a place of worship. Like it was very upsetting to think that I, I was like, I think that I will never be able to go into a synagogue again and feel completely at peace and feel like I've always felt the synagogue is like a place of healing and a, and a place of really beautiful spiritual connection. And I remember thinking after the Squirrel Hill shooting happened, like, I don't think that I can ever like fully let my guard down again. I talked to Meredith Jalanka, a sophomore who grew up in Boston. She also has felt a dearth of really connected Jews at Harvard, but in a different way. She grew up conservative, but she's now Orthodox. And on Shabbat, she doesn't do work or use electricity. She says being Sabbath observant has its challenges, especially now that Harvard's Jewish community has gotten so much smaller. I think that it's as hard as it would be at any secular college with a small Jewish population. Harvard is not uniquely easy or hard. Like Columbia would be a lot easier because there's 130 Orthodox Jews and even more non-Orthodox Jews. By the way, Meredith later told me that 130 was just a guess. But whatever the number, it's more than there are at Harvard. She just doesn't have that many Shomer Shabbos Jews to hang out with. What's more, the smartphone age, which began in 2007, let's say, with the advent of the iPhone, really creates a separation between observant Jews and everyone else. I mean, the hardest part is that Friday night, I don't have my phone and I have my little manual keys that only I have uh, because everyone can use their ID card to tap in. And I see people going off and doing things and they're all texting their friends and making plans. And I don't have my phone, so I can't text my friends. So I've basically written off Saturday. Saturday is not the day where I hang out with my non-Jewish friends. Saturday is the day where I hang out in Hillel I do some reading. I sleep. It's like if I run into my roommate and she's off to do something, maybe I'll go with her. And the kosher dining hall in Harvard's Hillel building used to be where everyone came together, Jews of all kinds, plus their Gentile friends. That's something I remember from my Yale days. The kosher kitchen was a cool place to eat for Jews and non-Jews alike. But Meredith says those traditions have hit a rough patch. Yeah, COVID killed us, frankly. That's the story that I hear from the people who are here before COVID. Before COVID, everyone, Jews, non-Jews, would come to the Hillel Dining Hall just because it's so centrally located. If you live like in the dorms far away that way or in the dorms far away this way, where else would they eat dinner? So they come to Hillel. But the institutional memory of that has been lost. Some of like the special dining nights that Hillel would have no longer happen. So we're definitely trying to build that up. But while the Hillel dining scene has been struggling, especially since COVID, there's a much bigger gathering of Jews that's thriving on Friday nights. That's the group having dinner at Chabad at Harvard. Chabad is a movement run by Orthodox Hasidic Jews, which focuses on outreach. They don't try to convert non-Jews to being Jewish, but they do try to expose less observant Jews to more traditional practices. Since the 1960s, Chabad, also known as the Lubavitchers, have set up off-campus centers at every major college campus in the United States and many around the world. The Chabad houses, as they're called, are run by couples, a rabbi and his wife, 
who live near the college and host Shabbat dinners and other kinds of cultural programming, like classes and holiday parties. And on many campuses, their events draw more people than what goes on at Hillel, the more mainstream organization. And this is even though Chabad is orthodox and most students aren't. At Harvard, Chabad's Friday night dinners are packed. My name's Zachary Zimmer. I'm a senior at Harvard College. I'm from New York. I moved to Miami like five years ago. I consider myself a Florida guy now. President of the Chabad at Harvard, and uh, I study economics. I met Zachary Zimmer at Harvard Hillel, but his primary Jewish home at Harvard is Chabad, where he's president of their student board. I say we have a great time every Friday night. Like we have our best meal of the week. It's way better than anything in the dining halls. So make sure that goes on the record. And we have wine, we sing songs, we bang tables, and it's a lot of fun. Like there's 200 people under the tent just smiling and they're happy. Lots of students like Zimmer and Jalanka take meals at both Hillel and Chabad. But while Hillel's dining hall closed down for COVID, Chabad just moved theirs outside. There is a perception out there, especially among Jewish high schoolers and their parents looking at colleges, that Harvard Jewish life and Ivy League Jewish life and elite campus life is a bit troubled. Now, from one angle, that sounds crazy. If you walk around Rosofsky Hall, the gorgeous Hillel building at Harvard, you certainly get the impression that Jews at Harvard are thriving. Like everything at Harvard, it's pretty spiffy. The sofas are plush, the flat screen TVs are large, the Wi-Fi signal is strong. On the night I was there, plenty of students were eating in the large outdoor sukkah. On the wall were posters advertising all kinds of activity, different minyanim or prayer groups, various classes, the Challah for Charity Service Project, a women's group, a group for queer Jews, and birthright trips to Israel, plus Harvard's own student-run trip to Israel. And if you include both Hillel and Chabad, there may be 300 people celebrating at Shabbat dinners on a given Friday night, which is a lot of Jews. So where does this perception that Harvard's a tough place to be Jewish come from? We've already looked at the declining numbers. It's harder to do Jewish at a school that is 5% Jewish than at one that's 25% Jewish. But there are other issues. For one thing, there's the recurring issue of anti-Israel activism, which often takes forms that many Jewish students and others feel are anti-Semitic. That is, they say the activism crosses the line from criticizing the Jewish state into criticizing or marginalizing Jews. In the spring, for example, anti-Zionist students at a lot of schools sponsor a week of activism they call Israeli Apartheid Week. And it goes on at Harvard. Activists bring in speakers who attack Israel. Also last spring, the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper, made national news with an editorial praising the wall and endorsing the boycott, divest, and sanction movement, which has been accused of promoting or suborning anti-Semitism under the cover of attacking Israeli policies. I asked Jewish students if all this activism affected their time at Harvard. And while some surely feel that way, most whom I talked to said no. If you actually talk to a bunch of Jewish students, you quickly realize that the question of anti-Semitism is, for many of them, beside the point. Here's one great example. A Jewish freshman I met just hanging out in Harvard Yard. I approached this young man and asked him his name and religion. He said his name was Will. Just Will. Um, I mean, my dad 
is Jewish. Um, my mom, nothing at all. And I get my grandma and grandpa are a little more into it, more my grandma, but I really know nothing. I know nothing about it. Like, I just don't, yeah. I don't know. I went to, like, a dinner at... I think it was at Chabad once, and it was literally just like a dinner with, and they were all really nice, and the rabbi was asking me questions, but um, I, I've, I, the only way I've interacted with religion here is just talking to people who are really passionate about it, like my roommate, he's very Christian, um, so talking to him about that and learning a lot more about it, um, I've like thought about it a lot more just as like a way people actually like live on a day-to-day -day basis, because like in Santa Monica, there's not that many people who like really are really strongly advocating for it, at least in my experience. So that's Will from Santa Monica. A little bit Jewish, doesn't know much about his religion, talks about Christianity with his roommate, and he's, you know, from Santa Monica. I liked him a lot. You could argue that he is Harvard Judaism, and Ivy League Judaism, and American Judaism. I mean, look, he has one Jewish parent and not much Jewish education. He probably has no shame about his Jewish heritage, but he's not particularly interested. He'll experience close to zero anti-Semitism at Harvard, but he might absorb the general left-wing critique of Israel. Or, I'm just guessing here, he might not even notice that the debate is happening. He might be too busy doing his thing, like working on his major, which he's trying to decide on right now. I'm considering either like um, history of science, um, film or I'm also in like environmental science too and I also do music so it's a lot of stuff a lot of stuff going together right now um, yeah I'll figure it out I'm sure maybe Will will figure it out but Jews like him who don't really know much or let's be honest care much or do much to stay actively Jewish are at a real disadvantage because the bias that Jewish students experience isn't the good old-fashioned sort like that song we heard on episode one, calling Jews sheenies and smirking that we'll all go straight to hell when we die. You remember that song, popular in Columbia fraternities in the 1920s? If not, go back and listen to episode one. That sort of thing is gone, gone, gone. Whatever bias there is on college campuses these days is smoother, more polished, more complex, more intricate. And as a young Jew on campus today, if you don't know that much about your people's history or ideas or religion, it's much harder to sort out what's going on, to tell what's actually vitriolic and what's fair game. Also, if you're 18 or 19 years old, you don't know what you're gonna do for a living. You have a lot of big questions to answer. And fighting these wars about anti-Semitism, Zionism, or Jewish privilege, it just doesn't feel like that's your job. And even if you wanted to tackle those questions, you feel totally unprepared, in large part because the people trying to prepare you share in this feeling that Jews aren't really outsiders anymore and don't really need to sweat it. They feel more American than Jewish. Your parents took you out of Hebrew school during the winter so the family could ski on weekends. They wouldn't let you have bar mitzvah tutoring on Wednesday afternoons because that was lacrosse practice. You couldn't go to Friday night services because Friday night was high school football. It just wasn't anybody's priority. So how much were you supposed to think Judaism mattered? But as Jews grew more comfortable, another group took our place as the striving, overrepresented, and much maligned Erevists on campus. Asian Americans.
For those of you who have been with Gatecrashers since the beginning, you'll remember what we said in episode one about Columbia, that pretty much everything about college admissions, from the application, to the interview, to the reliance on standardized tests, to legacy preferences, to the hunt for diversity, pretty much everything about college admissions was invented to keep the Jews out. The tools used to vet Jews became the tools used to vet everybody. And now, exactly a century after these tools were invented to enforce anti-Jewish quotas, America is being reacquainted with the nefarious roots of the college admission process. The Supreme Court will soon hear arguments in two cases, lawsuits brought on behalf of Asian American students against both Harvard and the University of North Carolina. In these cases, the plaintiffs allege that the schools discriminate against Asian Americans. And what we've already learned in the lower court hearings does indicate that Harvard is working from an old playbook. Harvard law professor Jeannie Sook Gerson has covered this case for The New Yorker. And she told me that she was surprised to learn how deliberately Harvard had worked to keep Asian American numbers down. There were some pieces of evidence that were shocking enough that I think that there was a gasp in the courtroom when they came out. And one of them was very explicit, which is that when when Harvard sent out letters of recruitment to potential applicants in what it calls sparse country, sparse country is like Midwestern and Western states where there aren't that many people who apply. And so they were making a special effort in states like Nevada and Idaho to recruit some students. So they sent out letters of recruitment, which is all good. But it turned out that if you were an Asian American boy living in such a state, you had to have a higher SAT score to get a recruitment letter from Harvard. But if you were a white boy living in one of those sparse country states, you could have a lower SAT score. So we're not even talking about a comparison between Blacks and Asians. You know, Blacks are historically disadvantaged. Whites are not historically disadvantaged. And yet they were sent a recruitment letter by Harvard if they had a lower SAT score than an Asian boy. So there was a a gap of like 60 points on the SAT. That's a pretty smoking gun kind of moment where you think they were making an intentional effort to recruit white students over Asian students. Sook Gerson was amazed that Harvard was so blatant about this move. She'd have thought they'd cover their tracks better. There was certainly more evidence than I thought there would be that you could point to kind of as smoking gun evidence. I didn't think that it was going to be like that because I thought, of course, Harvard admissions officers wouldn't do anything overt or explicit having to do with the race of the applicants and trying to keep Asian American numbers lower. But they did. And just to be clear about what Sook Gerson is saying, it would be one thing for Harvard to keep its percentage of Asian Americans down to make room for historically marginalized groups like African Americans and Hispanics. But in fact, when they go west to recruit in Nevada or Montana, Harvard wants to exclude Asian Americans to make room for white Westerners, grandsons and granddaughters of cowboys or shepherds or something. What the evidence seems to say is not just that Harvard wants to keep the number of blacks or Hispanics up, but that they really want to make sure that Asians don't squeeze out white people. If this sounds familiar, it should. A hundred years ago, the Ivy League schools were working overtime to make sure Jews didn't squeeze out white people, the real white people, as they saw it. And here they are today, using the same playbook, including marking Asians down for character, just as they did with Jews. Almost all of it was happening through the personality rating. 
people are being rated on qualities like courage and integrity and likability, effervescence. Effervescence is another word that, that people were being rated on. So these are qualities that they're being rated on. Are they racial categories? Of course not. At the same time, the discrimination against Asian Americans, almost exclusively, if you think that it was discrimination, it happened in that personality rating because they were not downgraded on extracurriculars. They were not downgraded on any other part of the application process, just the personality rating. This is the anti-Jewish playbook turned against Korean Americans, Chinese Americans, Indian Americans, Pakistani Americans, basically students of East Asian and South Asian descent. Because if Harvard didn't use these techniques, if they didn't rate Asian Americans as being less effervescent, the way they once rated Jews as having less character, then Asian Americans would constitute more than 27.6% of the class of 2026. Harvard might instead be more like the University of California at Berkeley, where 43% of the entering freshmen this year are of Asian descent. That's what Harvard could look like if the Supreme Court outlaws race-based affirmative action, as it might when it rules in the spring of 2023. At that point, it's unlikely that Harvard and other schools will give up their quest for diversity. They'll probably double down on the methods they already have for recruiting non-Asian students, methods that are technically race-neutral, but seem aimed to get certain kinds of students. They could, for example, establish admission quotas for students who grew up below the poverty line. Such students would be disproportionately Black or Hispanic or white and from rural areas. And this would be another strike against Asian American students and also Jewish students. Both groups are less likely than the average American to be poor. But here's the thing. Even without race-conscious admissions, Asian-American numbers in the Ivy League will go down, just as Jewish numbers were bound to go down. The longer a minority group is in this country, the more they resemble other Americans in all their wonderful, beautiful mediocrity. Fourth-generation anybodies are not likely to be striving, scrappy, ambitious academic powerhouses the way their great-grandparents were. And maybe that's okay. I think that it's a process whereby the story of immigration of Asians into the United States, it's one of the many stages right now with this question about affirmative action in the Supreme Court and about places in college and admissions. It's one part of that story. And overall, as we tell the story a century from now, I think we're gonna see a different landscape for how Asians kind of cultivate themselves and the kinds of pursuits they think are important, the values that they have, and it's all dynamic. Immigrant groups assimilate. It's not fashionable anymore to say that the United States is a melting pot, but let's face it, we are. The first generation learns English. The second generation struggles to get into Harvard. And the fourth generation aspires to become a TikTok lifestyle influencer, hoping to get paid to endorse hair products. We have no idea what Harvard will look like in 20 years or 100. And we have no idea what ethnic group will be so academically outstanding that Harvard will have to lie and obfuscate to find reasons to keep them out. But here's what I say to that. Let's all agree to stop caring so much about Harvard and Yale and the rest. In 1922, when the Ivy League began restricting the number of Jews, 
The American population was 110 million. Today, it's 330 million, exactly triple the size. But Jews and Asians and Blacks and everyone still fetishize the same eight Northeastern schools, the Ivy League. Sure, we've added Stanford and Duke to the mix and some very selective small colleges too. But by and large, we're still obsessed with the same schools as our great-grandparents. That's ridiculous. And another thing, I just quit teaching at Yale after 16 years. And on the one hand, Yale is everything you think it is. Well endowed, with world-famous faculty, and very brilliant students. But on the other hand, it's less than you think it is. It's not a place that celebrates eccentricity or individuality. Like all the Ivy League schools, it's become ideologically homogenous. Nearly everyone agrees on every political issue, and people would be afraid to speak out if they disagreed. It's not a place with much silliness or many surprises. I'm not sure it produces especially kind or honorable people. I think it's terrible what the Ivy League did to Jews 100 years ago. And I think it's terrific that we crashed the gates and made these places our own. I'm sad that techniques used to keep Jews out have now been turned on Asian Americans. But as for my own children, who are approaching college age, what I want for them is not the fanciest degree, but the best education. Not the smartest peers, but the most curious. I don't know what school gives you that now, but I have a fantasy that there is a school like that. In my dream world, it costs less than $75,000 a year. It bans smartphones and fraternities and assholes. And it's a perfect place for young people who are striving not for prestige, but for authenticity. I think of something Jeannie Sook Gerson said. As an Asian, when I speak to Asian American, say, parents who have young kids, I, I do see a lot of like, what can I do to get my daughter to be just like you? And I always say, you need to just get them to be just like themselves. To be yourself, to not be defined by the sweatshirt you wear, and to care more about your Judaism than about your alma mater. That's what I want for my children. And there's no standardized test for that. Gatecrashers is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Leibowitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Leon Crame is our research assistant. Our engineer for all eight episodes has been the redoubtable Ryan McAvoy. We relied in many ways on the scholarship of Jerome Carabell and Marsha Graham Sinon. Special thanks to Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman-Ader, and Daron Rusquet of Tablet Studios. And to Alana Newhouse, Morty Landown, Wayne Hoffman, Samantha Hacker, Kurt Hoffman, Esther Werdiger, Gabriel Sanders, Jeremy Stern, Matthew Fishmain, Ani Wilsensky, Isaac DeCastro, Larry Greenberg, and all the staff at Tablet Magazine. And Seth Higgins, Cody Fitzpatrick, and Peter Fox. I'd like to thank the Oppenheimers, my wife Sid, my children Rebecca, Elizabeth, Clara, Anna, and David, and the dogs, Archie and Minnie. And we'd like to thank the Crosses, Debbie, Miles, Stella, Violet, Oscar, and Jill. And also, big thanks to Ben and Edith Cohen. And Julia Conti, Andrew Sandweiss, Quan Zhang, Josh Swerdlow, Brett Green, and Alexander Schlesinger. And also, Michael Waller and Kelsey McDonald. Please go rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoyed this series, please do tell a friend. 
Do you have a story you want to share about being Jewish or Jew-adjacent in the Ivy League? We're looking for stories about all eight campuses that we've covered, and you can write to us at gatecrashers at tabletmag.com or leave us a voice memo at 917-310-0456. Remember to tell us your name and how we can get in touch with you. For more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash gatecrashers. For more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. 